Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Bill Miller, who serves as CEO of the Kane University Foundation in Union, New Jersey. Welcome, Bill. Good morning, Brent. How are you? I am doing great, and I've been looking forward to getting to know you, learning more about your story. You got onto our radar by way of a recent case presentation that you did around the evolving models that are working successfully at small shops, including yours. And so that was sort of the initial hook just to learn more about you and what you're up to. And we'll definitely dive into your unique model for small shops. But before we do that, I want to get to know you and who you are and why you're doing this work and learn a little bit more about your own education journey and your career path. And so as I've been asking our guests, I'd love to know more about uh, what led you uh, to Randolph-Macon College. Take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Bill? Uh, what was he into? Uh, and tell me about the path to Ashland, Virginia. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you, Brent, for making time uh, this morning to connect. And um, I know that there's a lot of really, really good, dedicated, passionate people out there. So it does mean the world to me that um, that you invited me to be on the podcast. So thank you very much for that. I um I haven't thought about my um my journey pre-career for a while, but um who was Bill Miller before he went to college? Well, he was um he was a soccer player. Uh, he was um he was a basketball player. He was a varsity baseball player, believe it or not. And uh, he grew up in a small town in um in New Jersey, which is very close to Red Bank, New Jersey. I'm not sure how familiar you are with with the Garden State, but um, but it was a terrific childhood. It was a terrific way to grow up. It's right on a peninsula, so a lot of water activities um, and just a really really great community. About forty minute about a forty minute ferry ride, give or take, outside of the big city, outside of Manhattan. Um, but I um I went to Randolph Macon because I wanted to play soccer and I wanted to, I, I really loved Virginia. I went to a number of different schools when I was taking a look at the different options out there, um, really on the East Coast. I knew that I wanted to stay close to home, but get far enough away where I can kind of, um, you know, embark upon my own journey a little bit. And, um, and Randolph Macon really spoke to me in so many different ways. Uh, and as I look back on it now, um, you know, I graduated with a degree in English and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that. And, uh, and as fate would have it, I met the late CEO of CCS Fundraising. His name was Bill Hanrahan. And, um, and he took me under his wing. And that's how I learned the business. And, and 20 years later, I, it's all I know. And I, I hope to have at least 20 to, to 40 more years doing the work that we're doing. Well, one of the great benefits of the podcast is it forces you, especially given a topic like higher education, which is uh, around the country, around the world, it forces an improvement in geography. So I now have a better understanding of exactly where Red Bank is. And I know that it's a five hour and 18 minute drive at this moment down to Randolph-Macon, which is just north of Richmond. Yep. Uh, and so you're there, you're involved as a as a student, um, you know, in, in interested in athletics. Um, is fundraising on your radar as a student? what led you to get connected to Bill? Yeah, I um, I kind of wish that it was, but I have to admit that it wasn't. I had these great aspirations of becoming the great American writer and novelist, and I envisioned myself um, following in the steps of of maybe Ernest Hemingway, at least on a professional front. But um, but as fate would have it, when I graduated, I, um, I connected with Bill, and Bill was at the time the CEO of CCS. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that firm, but they... Um, they're one of the larger players in the business. They work with all nonprofit organizations on a variety of fund development activities. And 
I got I got started out by conducting development audits and assessments, feasibility and planning studies, actual campaigns, whether it was a major gift initiative, an annual appeal, uh, a capital and endowment campaign. And um, and that's kind of how I got into the world of philanthropy. Uh, we did do some philanthropic work in my fraternity when I was at school, but that was really the extent of my knowledge of the space. And uh, I know today that it's um, it's becoming a much more recognized field, a much more sophisticated field. Uh, but I'm kind of um, I'm kind of jealous. I kind of wish that I did have that exposure when I was in school, because uh, I know that a lot of schools, a lot of institutions of higher education do offer programs now in this uh, relatively specialized field. So tell me about CCS at that time. And if you were, you know, if there are folks that aren't really sure what it is the consultants do or what exactly is an audit that would come in and, and, and you know, take a look at things, you don't got to give away uh, any IP necessarily, but what's the snapshot view of uh, you're an outsider, you're, you're a, let's say, a junior professional at that time under tutelage of folks like Bill but what is your framework? You know, you're you're like the home inspector. You come in, you got your checklist of items, make sure uh, how things look, give it a quick grade, and then you can develop a intervention plan from there. I mean, is that what it's like to 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 go into a new shop as a as a consultant? Uh, it, it it is the um uh, the project and and the client really kind of depend on on your approach. Uh, and as I look back on my career. I, um, I'm very grateful to have had that experience early on. And for those that are interested in philanthropy that are listening to the podcast, uh, I would highly recommend taking a look at CCS or a consulting firm out there because they do expose you to different aspects of the business and different nonprofit sectors in a relatively quick fashion. Uh, and um, to kind of piggyback or to revert back to your question, uh, there are some clients that are looking to raise millions or even billions of dollars. And they might be looking for an outside um, voice to serve as the architect to actually help them design and implement an initiative of that size. Uh, other organizations might be looking to just take a look internally at their methodologies and processes to see as to whether or not they're doing things right or how they could do things better. Uh, so that would be more on the development audit side of the house. And then uh, some organizations know that they want to raise a lot of money, but they're not quite sure how to do it or how much money they can raise. And in those instances, they sometimes partner with outside counsel to launch a feasibility and planning study to um, to see as to whether or not there's an appetite for a major philanthropic undertaking amongst the different constituents that um you know that the organization may have. So doing those types of different projects, um, embedding yourself in a life of uh, in the life of different communities, uh, I, it was really really valuable and really really important work. And uh, I still stay in touch with some of those guys at CCS because it was just such a great experience for me. Um, I would say the hallmark of my career so far at CCS, um, probably I've moved out to Pittsburgh in 2012, and the firm asked me as to whether or not I wanted to serve as a um, as the executive director for a $125 million capital and endowment campaign. And at the time where I was both professionally and personally, that was something that I couldn't say no to. Uh, so I actually moved out there, and CCS's model is a little different than other fundraising firms, although I think the models are changing in the industry. But when I was at CCS, um, I was a full-time resident consultant, right? So I was ex essentially an extended member of the, the the advancement shop or the development office. And I was there five days a week working with the staff, working with the leadership, working with don donors and prospective donors. So that's what we did when we went out to Pittsburgh. Uh, I actually set up shop out there and uh, believe it or not, we didn't even have a, a centralized database of constituents. So we had to construct and build a database. Uh, we had to raise a lot of money and we had to build a team that ended up growing to be larger than 20. 
And, um, and at the end of the day, uh, with a lot of luck and a lot of hard work, and um, I was very fortunate to be working with some really dedicated professionals, uh, we finished with about $230 million in commitments. And at the time, given the sector I was working in, um, we actually broke a fundraising record. So uh, that kind of exposure, that's a long-winded way of saying you can get that kind of exposure if you work at a fundraising firm. And it's a great way to really accelerate your career if philanthropy is something that interests you. I love that. It's a really uh, neat example. And I also understand that in addition to uh, that sort of domestic work and, and shipping over to Pittsburgh, you also shipped over to Paris or somewhere else uh, in France and, and had an opportunity to get uh, both sort of international life experience, but also work experience. So I love that Pittsburgh was the highlight, though, not uh, not Paris. Well, I'm not going to say that Paris wasn't a great time, both professionally and personally. Um, I actually went out there a few years before Pittsburgh, and um, and I was working in the 7th District for an organization called the American Church in Paris, and they're located right on the Seine. I think their address was 65K d'Orsay. And um, as you can imagine, just um, raising money in a different country, raising money in different currencies, whether it was um, raising money from folks that were living in France or a lot of the money that came to the American Church of Paris actually came from the states, from expats that were at one time in France. But going back and forth between two continents, working with volunteers in both the U.S. and in, in France was an amazing professional experience. And then on the personal side, I was I was as I was telling you before we started the podcast today, Paris might be the most special city I've ever been to in my life. I mean, London is pretty cool, too, uh, but but Paris is is really tough to beat. It's just wonderful culture, wonderful food, wonderful wine, wonderful everything. And um, now that my daughter is 10 years old, she's already lobbying me to get back to Paris. So I'm hoping that uh, if I'm lucky enough, I will get back there one day. I swear I didn't set this up, listeners, but I'm going there in five days for the first time. So <laughs> I'm going to hold off on my desire to just basically get Bill's favorite spots in Paris and to sort of be my travel agent here uh, on the rest of the episode. But it's very tempting to do that. Um, but I will ask you instead, uh, what are some of the broad brush observations, broad brush observations regarding philanthropy in France, philanthropy in Europe, what's exactly the same, what's completely different if there are uh, general conclusions you can share? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, it's obviously a different culture and it's a different mindset, right? And one thing about philanthropy in America, and it's why I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful profession to embark upon, uh, is that is that it's a major priority, right? I, last time I checked the Giving USA report, almost five hundred billion dollars was given away across the country. That's a huge number, and the majority of that funding, as you know, comes from individuals. It doesn't necessarily come from huge corporations. They're very generous and they play a very important role in the philanthropic landscape. Uh, but it's just ingrained in the U.S. or the American culture to give back and. Uh, I actually looked up the definition of philanthropy, and believe it or not, it's it's the love of humanity. And I think that really speaks um, to, to Americans and how generous they are, right? Because people ultimately give to people. Uh, in France, um, philanthropy is also very important, but it's different, right? Because there's different cultures, there's different expectations, there's different structure within society. So the conversations that you're having with a prospective donor, prospective donor in France could be very different than one that you're having, obviously, with somebody in, in the States. 
During your time at CCS, one of the unique uh, aspects that you've already highlighted, and unlike most of our listeners who tend to uh, elevate into advancement leadership roles, largely staying within the higher education sector. We've had plenty of leaders that have worked outside of higher ed, but you really kind of worked in, it sounds like almost every sector but higher ed prior to your leadership role um, at Kane. So just tell me more about the mix of industries that you served. I'm, I'm sure you had some education exposure through CCS's work, but any, I don't know, general impressions of the, the pros and cons or just different dynamics of specific verticals, higher ed being really unique in that we've got largely a defined constituency, at least as a starting point. Right. And, and you can build from there with local community, corporate foundation partners, et cetera. But you've got this core base of alumni uh, and some other verticals, you know, have something that feels a little bit like that, but there are definitely nuances. Where'd you spend most of your time and any observations? Yeah, I, um, I I will go back to the CCS experience in that I was very fortunate to work with different clients in different sectors. Um, but when I decided to uh, to go in-house, and the best thing that could have happened to me when I was in Pittsburgh, I alluded to it earlier, but I became a dad. So I wanted to get my daughter Paige back to New Jersey, and I wanted to go in-house. Um, and um, while I while I love the life of a traveling consultant, um, I... Um, I thought it made sense for me and my family to maybe become a chief development officer or a chief, a chief advancement officer. And I started out at Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York, which is a terrific organization, terrific mission, terrific board. I mean, you're talking about the president of the New York Stock Exchange, senior partners at McKinsey. Uh, and I was there helping them launch a 120 or $100 million centennial campaign. Um, but then an, an opportunity came, uh, came a calling at the American Red Cross. And that was to oversee fund development activities in the state of New Jersey. And the reason I bring that up is because their model is very different. About 60% of their revenue comes from corporations. And prior to that, the majority of my career, I was working really with individual philanthropists. So the, the American Red Cross experience was, um, was, was a great professional development opportunity for me. And as you might remember, that was the year of Hurricane Harvey, Irma, and Maria. So it was kind of the trifecta. So we, we were pretty busy, but... Um, we did finish that year with about $35 million raised for the uh, state of New or the region of New Jersey at the American Red Cross, uh, which at the time I think was a record break was a record breaking year for us. And the, the team really rallied and did a great job. Um, but that, uh, that uh, what, I, what I'm ultimately getting at is uh, because I've been exposed to different sectors and different industries, uh, certainly all of them are important. I love or I, I very much uh, value the work that's done in every particular sector or area of of the nonprofit space, but uh, for me, being a dad, uh, I, I would argue maybe the most important thing we can give our children is an education, and that's kind of um, that's kind of where the Kane University Foundation came in. I have done studies and I have done audits when I was a consultant for institutions of higher education, but in terms of being in house, you're right. Uh, this is my first experience actually working uh, as a chief development officer for a college or a university, and I got to tell you, it's uh, it's been an amazing ride. I've been here for about five years now, and um, uh, the the philanthropic output is improving year over year. Our donor count is actually increasing, and uh, as you probably know, there's a dollars up, donors down trend taking place right now. So we're really proud of that, and we're really proud too of. Um, securing the largest gift in the institution's history over the last five years. So um, there's a real momentum and buzz building on the foundation side of the house. But uh, what any organization needs, whether it's you know higher education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the arts, is you need a couple of key ingredients. You need a good story to tell. 
right? And and we certainly have that here at Kane. Um, but you know how you tell your story, that case for support, that's really important. And you also need a good group of leaders, right? So not just the university president or not just the bishop or the CEO. You need a, you need a solid board. You need folks that want to help you and, and want to provide support. And that's also internal leadership too, right? Like uh, I have the utmost respect for my academic partners here at Kane University. They're so committed uh, and they're doing such amazing work as we really transform this organization and take it to the next level. So there's the leadership component is kind of a key principle that I think you can apply to any sector. Uh, but then there's also a couple of other things and you touched on one, right? Like you need a bunch of friends or you need a pool of prospective donors and uh, the higher education space has alumni built in. But I will say that um, we're also very fortunate in that we're developing a number of corporate partnerships. Uh, we have friends that are on the foundation side. We have friends that, believe it or not, are even on our board of directors that are not graduates because of the work that we're doing. So you certainly need to build or, or, or think about ways to build that pool of friends and that network. And then the last thing for me is you need a plan, right? And that's that's ultimately kind of my job and, and our job as a foundation team. Um, but to work with our board of directors, to work with university leadership, to work with prospective funders and philanthropists, to implement a transformational plan, because as you know, there's a one and a half million nonprofits out there last time I checked, and there's a lot of philanthropic competition. So uh, we have to make sure that the story we're telling, the plan that we're implementing is a worthwhile philanthropic investment for those that are interested in possibly helping us. I love that summary. And, and I just want to uh, double click on a couple of things. One, just the growing intersection of corporate um, not only from a corporate foundation relations perspective, but how do corporations partner with universities like Kane to tighten up the talent pipeline to ensure that the curriculum that is being taught is preparing people to go out into the world, hit the ground running? And, you know, when I look at some of your top employers, Hackensack, Meridian Health, Amazon, Bristol Myers Squibb, Atlantic Health System, I think that we're at this moment where um, oftentimes when you would look at the top employers, of a given university, it just kind of happened organically given institutional history, priorities, key programs, geography. And then you wake up one day and you're like, oh, uh, Hackensack Meridian Health is our top employer versus like, we are going to be a conduit of talent to prepare students to go work at Hackensack Meridian Health. And we're going to partner with them to develop the right kind of curriculum to do even more of that sort of work. Oh, and in doing so, that might inspire philanthropic investment because now they're not only seeing it from a philanthropic uh, uh, view, but they're seeing the intersection of philanthropy and their business and their talent pipeline. And I have no idea if you've ever talked to or know anything about Hackensack Meridian Health, but it's meant to be an illustrative example of ways that um, institutions like yours are partnering more closely with corporate outside of your traditional CFR model. What are you seeing in that regard? What is Kane's role in that sort of regional talent pipeline development? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm happy with the progress we're making. I will be completely candid and say we still have a lot of work to do and there's a lot of untapped potential. So 
just in the last few years, we've developed partnerships with Amazon. We've developed partnerships with Yahoo. Um, we've developed partnerships with a number of leading companies across the country, but also those in New Jersey too. Prudential is a major player in the state of New Jersey, and we have a wonderful partnership with them. They're terrific friends. Um, but you're right. They're not just looking for that transactional relationship, right? It's a mutually beneficial partnership. So um, at the end which, of the by day, the way, I mean, you would contrast that with maybe like the Red Cross model you were describing before. You know, what what is what is the Red Cross? Um, what the Red Cross can provide to those corporate partners is radically different than what you all can provide, right? I think they they are, and you did the work, but like, tell me about the difference between the pitch in leading the Red Cross development work in New Jersey versus leading Kane University development work. Sure. What do you say to an employer in scenario A versus scenario B? Well, at, at the Kane University Foundation, I think an employer would be interested in developing maybe mentorship programs, maybe um, developing some type of um, recruitment pipeline, if that's depending on the specialty or depending at the educational courses offered at Kane University. Some of them might be interested in serving on our foundation board or providing leadership uh, because CSRE is a major topic right now. And uh, I don't know if you would know this, but Kane University is actually one of the most diverse institutions in the country, and we're really proud of that. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons that we think we're a terrific partner for some of the companies in New Jersey, the tri-state area, and even across the country. Uh, on the American Red Cross side, uh, it's a little bit different uh, in that the, the feeling is different, right? So you're, you, the American Red Cross exists to help people during a time of disaster or, or something unforeseen and uncertain. And uh, the cor corporations, at least in my experience at the Red Cross, really step in in a big way if there's a hurricane or if there's an unforeseen natural disaster. And th they want to help. They want to get their... Um, they want to get their employees involved in giving back, maybe from a volunteer capacity. The American Red Cross, I think last time I checked, was like 95% volunteer driven. So actually maybe going out on um, one of the things the American Red Cross does if there's not a major disaster is they promote fire safety. And there's like a blue, blue sky, gray sky component to working at the American Red Cross. And uh, volunteers are often often needed to go out and to educate families about the importance of smoke alarms, believe it or not, and to actually partner with companies to recruit volunteers to do that type of work are conversations that we would often have at the Red Cross. So, so you're right. The conversation is very different depending on the sector. I mean, even in the healthcare versus the higher education space, like I, I give back to my alma mater because of a positive experience I had but I would give to um, you know to my place of healthcare because uh, either they took care of somebody that's close to me in my life, they took care of me, or I um, you know I'm hopefully hoping they will take care of me, right? So every every conversation is a little bit different depending on the sector you're in. Love it, thank you. Tell me about the small shop content. You know your involvement with Case. What inspired you to put forth that presentation and you know, it's interesting because I think without having known a lot about Kane University prior to us connecting today, um, you could look at it on surface view and say, ooh, I bet that is a university that is challenged in today's environment of declining enrollment and the pressures that we've seen and student loan and blah, blah, blah. Um, but you already led with the momentum that you have, the growth that you're seeing, the continued upside. It is definitely not a 
a woe is me story that sometimes, you know, is getting the headlines out there. And so why do you feel so strong about the competitive positioning of Kane and what inspired you to sort of share your view of how that small shop model can can be sustained and and uh, really grow in the coming years? Well, yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, Kane overall is just in a terrific place and it's really the right time. It's the right institution. It's the right group of leaders. Um, and I'm not sure, again, how much you know about Kane University, but you're right. Some of our competitors are struggling with enrollment issues or some other challenges. And we have um, we, we don't we don't have that challenge. Right. Our enrollment, actually, our freshman enrollment was the largest class ever last year. So like why? I'm just cu more curious. Like there are so many examples where that is not the case. There is a macro, I think, eight percent decline in enrollment period from 19 to 22. So for you to have the biggest class ever, it just means as much as we don't like talking about competition in this sector, you're taking share from somebody else because it's not like there's just a whole bunch more students to go around. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I would have to go back to President Repolette, our board of trustees, some of the leaders at the university and the wonderful work that they're doing. But really over the last 20 years or so, and this is also a shout out to everybody that's been along this journey for the last 20 years, there's just been so many wonderful things and transformational things that have happened at Kane University. I mean, we started out as a teacher's college, believe it or not. And um, and we've since transformed. We're now a full-blown university. We're also the only university, a public university, I should say, that has an actual campus in China. So from a branding perspective, I think that's certainly been helpful. Uh, just from an academic course offering, uh, you know, I think we're getting better and better at what we're delivering. From an ROI standpoint, and this is a real shout out to uh, the board of trustees and the president and, and folks at Kane, but uh, we didn't raise enroll, uh, we didn't raise tuition for a couple of years during the pandemic, and we were able to navigate those waters better than some of our competitors. Uh, and we're also just recently were recognized as um, the state's only urban research university, and that's a distinction uh, that I think some of our competitors can't make, and that's a really important part of President Repolette's vision. And I think it's already paying. Um, paying off for us as an institution, as a Kane family, but I think we're just scratching the surface on the potential. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I, I, I didn't address your second question about the foundation. So the foundation is, um, to my knowledge, has a unique model in that uh, I'm actually employed by the foundation. My team is employed by the foundation. We're very much a part of the Kane family. Um, but one of the things that um, that we're doing that other places aren't doing is we're overseeing our own human resources, our own information technology, our own benefits. So the team is really running a business with a history and a built-in donor base and pool of prospective donors. And uh, that's exciting. That's fun. That's challenging. And that's a little bit different. And I thought that Case might be interested in that. So uh, myself and a couple of our team members went up there. I think it was March we presented in New York City. And, uh, and the, the response was really positive. And I've been getting a lot of questions after the session about our model and what's working and, and, and frankly, what I don't like. And uh, it's just been a terrific ride so far these past five years. And um, it seems to be working because I told you earlier, the numbers are improving. We seem to be going in the right direction. So um, very grateful to have had the opportunity to present a case and very grateful to be able to be leading the charge with this relatively unorthodox model, given our asset base. We we have assets of about $100 million, give or take, depending on the market, um, which is not small, like in, 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 in the grand scheme of things. We're never going to be Rutgers, but we're one of the larger players in New Jersey among state institutions. Uh, however, with that said, we obviously don't have a billion or a $50 billion endowment. So uh, our, our model is, um, to my knowledge, we're one of the only ones in that cohort 
that seem to be doing this. Tell me more about the uh, the investment in China, the commitment there, the the risks, concerns. It's got to be complicated, but clearly it's been a source of growth. Um, how, how how have you all navigated that? Yeah, I um. I don't want to speak out of my lane because I don't oversee the China relationship. I can say that I did go over there when I first started. The campus is absolutely amazing. It's in a city called Wenzhou, which I hadn't really heard of before I started at Kane. But believe it or not, it's a city of 10 million people, which is a huge city. Um, but the, um, the 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 students over there, they also come over to our Kane campus and uh, and and they're just terrific. I believe um, Wenzhou Kane University just celebrated its 10 year anniversary. 10-year anniversary. Uh, enrollment continues to increase over there. Uh, it's a full-blown U.S. curriculum, to my knowledge. Um, so we uh, we still very much, um, you know, kind of shape the education that the students experience over there. Um, but if you do want more information, or if you you know if you if you're interested, I can certainly connect you with maybe our provost or some representatives at the uh, at the university who could certainly speak to it better than I could. Appreciate the uh, oversight and yeah, uh, the overview and. Uh, going there had to be a trip, and my understanding is there are at least 11 cities in China with populations over 10 million, most of which uh, no one listening can name, including me. So that is that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so tell me just more about the future, the future of the foundation, the future of the development work. What are you excited about? What are you concerned about? What do you hope you can say you've achieved when we catch up in 2030, for example? Yeah, great, great question. So I'm very excited about the overall philanthropic space. I, I hope that comes out in our conversation because um, I tell people that are interested in this business or want to work at the Kane University Foundation, there's a few key ingredients, at least in my experience, that you need to be successful in this business, right? You need to be uh, interpersonal, right? You need to be able to develop relationships, whether that's externally with donors and friends or internally with, with colleagues. Uh, so there's a relationship component, but there's also a data-driven component. And we've implemented a lot of metrics over the last five years here at Kane uh, because the numbers don't tell the whole story, but they certainly point you in the right direction. So uh, I do think, and as an industry, I think we're just going to become more and more metrics-driven. I'm already seeing some of it on the AI side and some of the exciting work that's taking place there. Uh, but then there's also the communications component, right? And I think that's where I got lucky in that the English major comes out sometimes, but there's there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of presentations, there's a lot of proposal development. And honestly, there's a lot of listening. Uh, listening is a really, really important part of our work and making sure that we're aligning the donor's interests and intent with our perspective mission and what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, at the end of the day, the um, the most important ingredient that I think uh, you need to be uh, you know, kind of involved in this business is passion, right? So really genuinely believing in the work that you're doing, because it's not a nine to five job. There are days where you're working pretty hard. There are days where it's, it's kind of like a flow, right? There are days where you can get out a little bit early, but, you know, if you got a gala coming up in two weeks, like we do, for instance, uh, you know, you certainly have to put in the time and make sure that it's a successful event. So um, overall, I think that um, I'm seeing that in the industry. I'm excited about where the industry is going. I'm seeing really serious, sophisticated professionals um, and even 20 years ago, you kind of fell into this business, right? But now people are actually making a real effort to build a career out of it before even graduating from, from college or university. So I'm very excited about where the uh, the um, the space is going. I will say, you know, we all heard about the 
the dollars up, donors down crisis that I was talking about earlier and the generosity crisis. I recently read that wonderful book that Brian Cummings and, and Nathan, I think, Chappelle wrote. But um, 20 years ago, believe it or not, I think two out of three Americans were giving back and now it's less than 50%. So as an industry, I think that's something that we have to be aware of and we have to make sure that you know, we, 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 we try to combat as much as possible. Uh, and then there's also an industry-wide challenge um, on the burnout piece, right? Because the one danger with being too passionate is that you can burn out. And we have to be careful of that. I mean, there are folks that I think and on the major gift side that only last 18 months in a position. I recently read something from the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy that even chief development officers are burning out after a three-year period. Uh, so actually taking care of, you know, uh, of ourselves as much as we're trying to take care of the organization, I think is going to be really important as the organ as the um, as the profession moves forward over the next 10 years or so. Uh, and then on the Kane University Foundation side, I, I hope when we connect again, I can tell you that we just concluded a very successful university wide fundraising campaign. Uh, so when I started, uh, I conducted that development audit and assessment, it was relatively informal, I didn't hire a consultant, but I kind of did a lot of the looking under the hood, taking a look at the systems, the methodologies. I took a look at, um, you know, what our constituents wanted the foundation to do, what it wanted, what they wanted it to accomplish, what their overall perception of Kane University Foundation was, and I, um, I did benchmarking too, and that was kind of step one in, in the Bill Miller Master Plan for Kane, and then step two was to launch a feasibility and planning study, and we just concluded that, and the overall recommendation was that we do move into a major fundraising campaign. And our, our board of directors, our campaign steering committee, um, just uh, unanimously endorsed that we do proceed with our next campaign here at Kane. And uh, Kane hasn't done a campaign since 2008. That's about 15 years ago or so. So it's <laughs> it's certainly time. Uh, but now we're in the very very early stages of taking a look at you know what that campaign is going to be, how it's going to unfold, what's the timing, what are we raising money for. Uh, so I do hope that when we connect in 2030, I can tell you that we had a very successful campaign that's trans transformed a lot of lives, not just students, but also our faculty has helped to augment our research and the great programmatic work that the university is doing. And I'm not sure if um, if you've been to our campus or if you've seen pictures, but uh, you're certainly more than welcome to visit, but we have really top-notch facilities and we want to maintain those as well. So if I can tell you that seven years from now, I, uh, I'll be a happy man. Sounds like a plan. I'm adding a calendar reminder uh, to reach out in 2030 in June. So stay tuned. Uh, you mentioned the gala. It's upcoming. It's taken a lot of your time. Uh, the gala that you haven't done in four years in light of pandemic and all of the associated uh, disruptions with that. And it is representative of one of the most like in-person pre-pandemic, you know, the opposite of the Zoom meeting. Uh, and so I'm curious, as you think about, you know, where we're settling out now in 2023, how your view of sort of the importance of the in-person things like the gala has evolved or not, uh, and then also what your view is of the role of technology and the virtual, um, even as we look forward to being able to do things like galas. Yeah, we, we talk about that kind of stuff internally all the time. And I'm really excited about our gala because you're right, we haven't done one in four years uh, and there's different reasons for that. But um, the thing that I love about the gala, um, obviously it generates revenue and it helps to support our mission, but it brings in new friends, right? So there's a branding component, there's an increased awareness component that I think is really valuable. 
Um, so I, uh, I'm very excited to not only, you know, be spending time in a couple of weeks talking about the great work that's taking place at the foundation and talking to some of the donors who have continued to support us all along the way, but I'm also very excited to meet some new friends. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of value in that. I think a lot of organizations missed that during the pandemic. And uh, you certainly don't want to be overly reliant on one stream of revenue. I know there are some nonprofit organizations that struggled because they literally couldn't do any events. Uh, luckily, we're diversifying our revenue streams and we were able to make it through. But um, but they're very, very important. And um, I, I don't see technology replacing them. I think we will continue as an industry to be more and more strategic about the events and about what resonates with our donors. But um, I don't know that I see them going away. I don't know that I would recommend that they go away anytime soon. Love it. Uh, tell me about your team. Are you hiring? Uh, folks want to stay in touch, Bill. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, we have a terrific team. Uh, when I started, believe it or not, we had four people on staff and we now have 12. So we've tripled in size. Uh, we used to call ourselves small but mighty, but now I guess we're we're kind of medium but mighty. Um, but yes, yeah, as, as we go into a campaign, as, as, as the different phases unfold, uh, we will be looking to, to add talent and to add positions. Uh, for an organization of this size, don't quote me on this, but I say we'll probably land with around 20 or so, give or take. Uh, but there's definitely um, there's definitely an appetite to build out the program, uh, and that's a that's a huge shout out and a thanks to our university president and our board of directors who really value and see see the value in philanthropic work and what it can do for the university. So uh, very grateful to be growing. I know a lot of organizations aren't in that situation right now, and uh, and I'm thankful for that. Let's say that other people listening are also thinking about heading to France this month, if there were just one, two, or three items, activities, things to do or see that you would recommend for people who might be considering that, what would those be, Bill? Oh, gosh, it, I guess it depends on how much time you're going to have over there. Let's uh, say you have like four nights, five days, roughly. I'm just speaking on behalf of others listening here. Hypothetically speaking, of course, um, I would say, well, definitely experience Paris as much as you can. Um, there's a great um, there's a great city called Versailles, which is a very, very easy train ride from Paris uh, that I would recommend going out to check out. Um, if you have the time, it was probably one of the most majestic and ex uh, amazing experiences of my life, even if you just spend a day. But take a train ride into the French Alps. Uh, Chamonix is where I set up shop. And oh, my gosh, it was probably it was one of the, the best places I've ever been to in my life. I mean, even if you're not a skier or if you're going over there and it's not ski season, it's just the beauty and the mountains. It's certainly worth checking out. Um, go to Sacred Heart Cathedral. If you're a Doors fan, check out Jim Morrison's grave. Uh, make sure you just take some time to sit back, relax at a cafe and have a glass of wine or a cafe au lait. Uh, and just embrace yourself in the culture. But uh, I'm jealous talking to you. It's been a while now since I've been over there. And I really, really, really can't wait to take my daughter over there. Love to hear that, uh, Bill, and, and wish you the absolute best as you continue uh, the growth story that you're living through at, at Kane. And uh, it's just very exciting and, and energizing. And so with that, I'm just going to wrap up today's episode. But I'd encourage our listeners, reach out to Bill. He's on LinkedIn. Uh, Kane University Foundation CEO, thank you so much for being here. Uh, best wishes for continued success and uh, get that trip planned with your daughter. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Brent. There's um, there's so many good people out there, and it means the world to us that you took the time to to talk to us a little bit today about Kane University and my own personal career journey. And I always enjoy meeting people in the in the business and in the space. So thank you for your time, and I I do really, really, really wish you all the best as you embark on your your journey trip uh, or your France trip. Uh, can't wait to hear all about it, and uh, hopefully you'll take some pictures too. You bet. Love it, Bill. Thank you, man. Be well. Take care. And with that. Uh, thank you, Ray's community. Brent signing off with today's guest, Bill Miller from Kane University. Take care, everybody.